Back at it again with episode 21. Damn, Daniel. Back at it again with the white vans. How did that video go viral? You've seen it, right? If you haven't, look it up. It's funny. It's the stupidest thing you will ever see, but look it up. Damn, Daniel. You know these two kids, these two high school kids who got famous for a minute on Snapchat with the old damn Daniel, damn Daniel, probably nothing dumber than this video, but you might smile, you might laugh, you know what I'm talking about, but the question is why, why did that go viral? That's actually a great question. Why do the dumbest videos go viral? Here's a theory. America sometimes needs some dumb shit. Things get heavy, right? Things get real heavy, especially the news right now or the news every day of every year. Always. It's kind of what the news is. The news is not lighthearted. Never has been. You sit on the couch, you watch some news. It gets heavy in a hurry. But then if you watch too much, it starts to weigh upon your mood and you feel down in the dumps. And then you do need a little damn Daniel. That is a fact. America needs dumb mindless, senseless comedy, or just content. In a weird way, that's what sports radio was. When I was hosting, I would wonder, who's listening to this? Like, if there were heavy issues going on in the world, I was thinking, who's really listening to us break down batting averages or going for a two-point conversion instead of the extra point in overtime? And then I realized, oh yeah, people need a diversion. They can't just keep it on political talk, news talk, heavy talk. They need to come to the sports talk side once in a while for a diversion. We all need a diversion, something lighthearted, your podcasts that you listen to. And if you're listening to this, I know you at least listen to one podcast, but you probably need some lighthearted podcasts. If you're the type that needs, you know, deep, groundbreaking, newsworthy podcasts, talking about insightful, stimulating stuff, then you got to mix in a few dumb ones. Not sure where this one falls in. Maybe This is the hybrid, a diversion and some deep stuff. So welcome in. My name is Josh. You can leave a review on iTunes, as you know. Go for it. You can follow me on Twitter at jrosenberg957. We're going to jump around a bunch today, a bunch. Let me start here. My dad is a 69-year-old Jewish man from New Jersey. Last month, he got back from a trip to Las Vegas and told me he saw Pitbull in concert. Once again. My dad is a 69-year-old Jewish man from New Jersey who saw Pitbull live in concert. I don't know any Pitbull songs, but I do know one thing. He's not in the demographic. Correct? What is Pitbull's demographic? I actually don't know the answer to that question. I'm just curious. What's Pitbull's demographic? Who's listening to Pitbull and saying, yeah, I mean, this guy is a musical genius. I like the message. I like what he's doing up there on stage. Of course, I would never see Pitbull live in concert. But my dad, at first it sounded ridiculous, but he ended up inspiring me. And he liked it, by the way. I think he likes everything. He'll see anybody in concert. This man has eclectic taste. And when he goes to Vegas, he sees any show. He'll see Cirque du Soleil. He'll see Rod Stewart. He'll see Cher. He'll see the Osmonds. He'll go to all the exhibits. He'll drink all the booze. He'll gamble at every casino. This guy knows how to do Vegas. He eats at the nice restaurants. He goes to the spa, gets the massage. He should have a podcast about how to do Vegas properly. I've done Vegas probably nine, ten times in my life. 
Sometimes with friends, sometimes with my dad. Always better with my dad. He just knows how to do it. Plans out every activity, but it moves along seamlessly. Doesn't feel organized, but it is structured perfectly. Go to this bar, then to this restaurant, then to this show. The guy knows what he's doing. He even found time for Pitbull. But back to the point. He's not the demographic, but I think we should all attend things where we are not the demographic. Case in point. And this is a real low-level case in point. But as a teacher, we are required to do supervision for events, performances, activities after school. So me, classic one-trick pony, I sign up for sports. Football, football, basketball, basketball, done. Boom. Not to say I would not enjoy choir or a play, but I always just go for sports, 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 because I'm drawn to it. Love it. But this year, this past year, with the birth of my daughter, I could not attend one of the basketball games, so they had to reschedule me for a soiree, which is basically a talent show from the MSA kids. MSA, Marin School of the Arts. The high school I work at incorporates the Marin School of the Arts. So there's all these prodigies all over the place. Artists, actors, filmmakers, sculptors, photographers. It's a vibrant campus. A lot of good things going on. And I was scheduled to supervise the soiree, the end of the year soiree. So I guess little out of my zone. I don't want to say out of my comfort zone. I'm comfortable, you know, watching a talent show. But when I got there, I realized, oh, this is a crowd that I'm not exactly familiar with. I guess you could say artsy kids. And it was mainly the creative writing kids presenting their poetry, their prose, their deep, profound thoughts. And it takes a lot of courage to do that. And it was under the trees. It was outdoors on a nice outdoor stage. And I came in there with my boat shoes. I figured Sperry's were the way to go for this. And all the parents just enjoying watching their children perform. And these kids, in a weird way, are fearless. I don't even think they know it. But when they express themselves up there deeply, and they talk about heavy, heavy issues through their own poetry or creative writing, it's a beautiful thing. I would never have signed up for it, but it was good. Was I the classic demographic? Not really, but it was great. And my dad, not the classic demographic for Pitbull, but I bet he had a good time. I would love to see footage of him at this concert. Was he fist pumping is the question we may never get the answer to. Did he sit in his seat, have a martini, listen to it like it was jazz? Or was he in the pit? Because I imagine there's a sweaty pit in front of the stage dancing with everybody. Maybe I'll get that answer for the next podcast. Wouldn't that be nice? But there's a message to all of this. Get out of your comfort zone. If you think you would hate ballet, go see it. And then hate it if you see it and hate it. But don't hate the idea of something. I need to take all of this advice. I hope this podcast doesn't sound preachy. This is all a bunch of stuff I need to hear myself. If you think you'll hate the opera, if you think you'll hate the symphony, go see it and then hate it after you see it. I'm good at that, by the way. I'm good at at least giving things a chance and then confirming that I don't like it. But give things a chance. Give Pitbull a chance. All right, I should dance away from this topic because we're going to start a book club. And I don't know how many people listen to this, but even if there's one other person in the listening audience right now who takes my recommendations for books and you read it, then let's talk about it through all of the many avenues to get a hold of me. But I am currently reading a book. And I don't just want to say reading. I am binge reading. Of all the things we could binge, reading is probably the healthiest, right? 
binge, the word goes along with so many unhealthy things. Binge drinking. Binge watching Netflix. Binge pumping heroin into your veins. I guess nobody says that. But the idea of binge doesn't sound good until binge reading. You find a book you love, you can't put it down. You even love it so much you want to stay up past your bedtime. You fight your eyelids because reading just naturally makes you sleepy, but you fight your eyelids to keep reading. That is the book I have discovered. It's called Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. And I don't even watch The Daily Show. He was the highly touted replacement for Jon Stewart on The Daily Show. South African Trevor Noah takes over The Daily Show. And most people said, oh, what? You can't even call it The Daily Show anymore without Jon Stewart. But from everything I hear, Trevor Noah does a really good job. And I've seen clips. I've seen a little bit, but I've never really watched a full episode of Trevor Noah on The Daily Show. However, because I like history and I like comedy, and he tells the story of South Africans' ugly history through apartheid, and he also gets into his life as a comic a little bit, I thought this will be my summer reading. And I read slowly in the summer, but not this book, Binging It. It's amazing. It is so well written, you would simply think he is a writer. Not a comic, not the host of The Daily Show, but it's written in a way where you go, oh, this guy's just a natural writer. And I don't have a clue what the editing process looked like, but it's really a smoothly written, brilliantly written book, a historical account of apartheid, which he grew up in and then also emerged out of. As apartheid started in the late 40s and ended in the early 90s, Trevor Noah, born in 1983, born into it, And then he got to see the transition out of it. So his mom, a black woman, met a white man from Switzerland, had Trevor. And because that is a crime, they actually passed a law, just like many of their racist laws, passed a law that says that can't happen. You can't have intermixed children. You can't procreate if you have different skin colors. That's illegal. We take the kid away. We arrest the parent. They had to keep him indoors. So his early memories of childhood, there were a few times he got to play in backyards, but he was not in the streets with the other kids. They actually had to hide him, keep him indoors. And he was educated in so many different languages. And obviously you have identity crisis when you start to wonder what group do I fit into? And all of the many groups in South Africa, the book is outstanding. And there are some laughs, there are some tears, but most importantly, it's a great primary source. If you really want to learn about apartheid, sure, you could go to Wikipedia. You could probably open an encyclopedia. You could Google it up. But just read this book. It's called Born a Crime, and it's amazing. If anybody has read it, you know what I'm talking about. And if you're looking for a book right now, Born a Crime is for you. Now, because I still have about 30 pages to go, I'll get more into that on the next podcast, on episode 22. But episode 21, there's another book out there. And I haven't read it, but my wife has, and she educated me on it. And it's almost a to-do book, a how-to book, a guidebook. And it's written by Marie Kondo. Who is she, you're asking? Who's Marie Kondo? Well, she's a Japanese decluttering guru. I'll say that again. She is a Japanese decluttering guru, making a lot of money, selling these books, telling people to declutter their lives. So right now, think about your home. Do you have piles of papers and envelopes and pamphlets and brochures and things that just don't need to be stacked up on your table and desk and counter? Yeah, we all do. It's weird, isn't it? We all just have piles of paper. Even the people that try to declutter, they still slowly accumulate these piles of papers. 
70 to 80% garbage. And the stuff that's not garbage, take care of it. It's probably a bill or something that needs to be addressed, and then you get to throw that away too. But that's not what her book is about. The one book that we followed, this is a good activity for a married couple. This is a very good activity, especially if you have limited closet space. She says to declutter your life and spark joy. And it actually has a psychological effect to declutter your life. Take everything you own out of the drawers, out of the closet, throw it on the bed. And then one by one, even socks, boxers, t-shirts, jeans, pants, suits, coats, beanies, hats, yada, 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 yada. Throw it all on your bed. And one by one, pick it up, put it in front of your face and ask yourself, does this bring me any joy? And if the answer is not immediately yes, toss that shit. Or bring it to the Goodwill or Salvation Army. And see how many articles of clothing you've just been hoarding that you know you'll never wear. Just taking up space in your life. It's amazing how many things you toss out. But that's not the amazing part. The amazing part is how you feel afterwards. And you know you have to part with some things. You know that shirt that you'll never touch, but you go, yeah, but it was a concert in the 90s I liked. She goes, yeah, then put it in storage. But don't let it take up space. Our space is so sacred. Now, I should give you the disclaimer once again. I didn't read the book. I just followed my wife as she gave me instructions of how to declutter. But it's good. It's good for the soul. Another good summer activity. Another good book. Her name is Marie Kondo, a Japanese decluttering guru. It's a very literary podcast because I'm about to jump into another man who wrote books. So, not totally known as an author, but Anthony Bourdain, who killed himself a couple of weeks ago, wrote some great books. And he was on TV kind of like a travel and cooking guide type of show on CNN, Parts Unknown. Also had the other show, I believe it was called No Reservations. And it was a sad, shocking story that Anthony Bourdain killed himself in France a couple of weeks ago. At least I was surprised, but I didn't really know much about him. I've heard him interviewed on podcasts. Incredibly bright guy. Would have been such a good radio host. That's what I've taken away from his career. Yeah, he wrote books. Yeah, he was a TV host. Yeah, he was a public speaker. Yeah, he was a chef. But the guy would have had the highest rated radio show. And I'll tell you why in a moment, after I sip this coffee. So before his death, I would say I've seen his show maybe four times, maybe five times. I saw him go to French Laundry, this upscale restaurant in the wine country. I saw the one where he goes to Jerusalem. I saw where he goes to Tokyo, and I think I saw one more where he goes to the Bay Area. Yeah, he goes to Swan Oyster Depot, the great seafood restaurant in the city. Always a line, but very worth it. And he seemed pretty poised. You know, he narrates the show, and then you see him meet the chefs or meet the people in the town, and he gives a great historical account of the town he's in or the city he's in and the culture and the ethnicity and everything that makes their cuisine so special and unique. And it's just really well-written. You can tell he's the guy who's living it, experiencing it, and conveying it to we, the viewers, to us. And that is clearly a show you could binge watch. Absolutely. You could go episode to episode and get around the globe. Well, altogether, he had about 90 episodes. So this man, well-traveled and well-fed. The type of show where you're immediately hungry as you watch it and craving wine, the fine wines that he's drinking. Not the $5 couch wine that you're probably sipping as you watch it. But after his death, I figured, all right, let me go back and watch some of these. And I started with the Sicily show. 
Anybody? Have you seen him go to Sicily? It sheds a lot of light on his sad demise. Not to say suicide was expected with Anthony Bourdain, but I realized how little I knew. And then I listened to his interview with Mark Marin, WTF, and he talks about a history of heroin addiction, and he talks about all the issues he's had in his life. Very honest. And even though he apparently kicked the heroin addiction, he's always had a tough time with one thing, and that is attaining true happiness. See, a lot of us would look at his life and go, how can't you be happy? It's a very naive outlook because we've never lived a day in Bourdain's shoes. How can't you be happy? You're eating good food all the time. You're traveling to wonderful places throughout the world. You're drinking fine wines. You're meeting nice people. Yeah, but happiness, as we know, it comes from how our brain operates. His brain was not operating in a way where he was able to grasp happiness for all that long. But the Sicily episode I watched, he really reveals depression, anger, binge drinking, probably alcoholism. He blacks out. He even leaves his own show and the cameramen just continue filming. At one point, they take him on what should have been a deep sea diving adventure to catch fresh fish. But instead, they start throwing, you know, frozen fish into the ocean to make it seem like all this fish is coming his way. And he gets pissed off. He gets so angry about it. He feels scammed by the Sicilian fishermen or whoever guides him into the ocean. He gets so pissed off that by the time the boat docks, he just storms off and starts drinking in his hotel room. And then he comes to dinner, totally blacked out, hammered, although he's still speaking coherently. And then the rest of the episode, he's just down in the dumps. You could tell he's pissed. You could actually see misery on this guy's face for the rest of the episode. And I thought, wow. Maybe there were some signs that came out through his show. And people that really watch Anthony Bourdain's show, they must know him better than me. But then I watched another episode, and he describes feeling pissed off, depressed, and just flooding his body with more wine and more drinking and knowing that he needs to detox after this episode. So he really jumps in when it comes to experiencing everything about a town's restaurants and cafes and culture. He doesn't moderate. Which makes for a pretty entertaining show. Actually, really entertaining show. But I learned a little bit more about him, so I guess the shock value wasn't there. I was totally shocked when I saw the news. CNN breaking news, Anthony Bourdain kills himself. And you go, oh my god. Seems like there's way too many suicides in the news right now. But you learn more about the guy. And it's just a little more clear, a little more insight into what he may have been experiencing. And I also have about 70 more episodes to watch before I start taking even more guesses into what happened. But I do have one theory, and this is not about suicide. This is just about intellect. Uh, It's undeniable. Intelligence is undeniable. Now, you can muddle it with substance abuse, heroin addict, drank too much. The guy obviously suffered emotionally. But when you hear him speak and you watch how that show flows... And if you've ever read any passages of his books or heard him interviewed on a podcast or have seen Bourdain speak, he's just smart. Smart rises to the top. No matter what you do to yourself. Now, not to say you can't hurt your brain and hurt your mind. Of course you can with substance abuse. But smart people, once they get moments of clear-headedness, It rises to the top and they can still express themselves in a way where you go, oh, beneath all of it, there is some genius. Think about how many musicians and artists and actors have dealt with substance abuse 
but have still been able to succeed with their craft. It's insane, right, that Jimi Hendrix was still able to play the guitar at such a high level, despite the fact that he was tripping on acid and LSD. You wonder, when you watch Richard Pryor do stand-up comedy, how are you able to put together such a brilliant set when we all know that you're coked up, drunk, all of these many things, because intelligence, it's a powerful thing. Intelligence is probably the one thing that tries to combat substance abuse. They're always in a fight. If a smart person is just dirtying up their pure brain synapses, intelligence knows, all right, we got to fight today. But when it rises, and this is what you see when you watch Parts Unknown with Anthony Bourdain, when it rises up, it's there and you can't deny it. It's a powerful thing. All right, continuing to jump, jump, jump around. The crisscross version, not the House of Pain, jump around. But a Daddy Mac will make you jump, jump, jump around. Put on those backwards overalls. And here we go into a social media rant. This one will be mild. I know I seem like a hypocrite because I'm on social media, but I'm so critical of social media. I think most of us are, right? Even if we're on it, we can see the negatives, the blatant negatives. Don't let it brainwash you. Don't ever let it tell you this is how society is moving and how it needs to be, how it's supposed to be, how we're going to communicate and display our lives. Let's all fight it. Even if we're on it, we still have to comment about it. So here's my social media rant today. And it was triggered by something I saw yesterday. All right. Yesterday, one of my close friends, the mayor of Nevada, Josh Friday, he went out to El Paso. We all know what's in the news right now. Families being separated, kids detached from their parents, being held in detention centers along the border. We've seen this. It's almost not worth having the controversial discussion because I think we can all agree, eh, that's not good. And if you want to talk about morals, we can talk about executive orders and policy and laws, but just talking about morals, yeah, that's probably something that should not happen. Families being torn apart as they seek a better life in the Estados Unidos. Okay, so that aside, Josh Friday goes down to El Paso with a bunch of other mayors from other cities, and he puts this on his Facebook page. You know, just announces, hey, as a father of three sons, I'm going down to El Paso because something has to be done. Let's not be silent about this. Very admirable. Very commendable. And then I scroll down. Oh, fuck. Then I scroll down. And a lot of people say, hey, thanks, Mayor. Thanks, Josh. You know, we support you. But a few lowlife bastards. A few complete morons need to put the negativity up there. Why? Because politicians, even at the lowest level, even a mayor of a small town like Novato, politicians receive a ton of criticism. Some people are just ready to disagree with politicians. They're contrarians. Anything they hear, they go, oh, who's feeding this guy's agenda? Who's stuffing his pockets? So there were comments under Josh Friday's simple post, I'm going to El Paso to do anything I can to make sure attention is pointed in this direction. Not going to stay silent. And there's one idiot who writes, who's paying for this? Who's paying for this? As if Josh is going to the big Novato vault and swooping cash, just stealing the cash of the nice residents of Novato to get to El Paso. <laughs> the evil mayor is taking all the cash to take this wonderful vacation to El Paso. Fucking Texas. Who's paying for this? What a sweet question, sir. And then another lady. She wrote, what an idiot. 
Wish I lived in Novato to vote him out of office. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Well, thank you, ma'am. Thank you for weighing in with your Facebook comments. What a sweetie. What a sweet lady. And then I go down the rabbit hole. I start looking at their profiles. Who are you? Why are you so angry? Like, why does that trigger any negativity that a local mayor is going to El Paso? Why do people immediately have to be skeptical and cynical and just angry? I think Facebook has either revealed that culture or maybe that's always been the case. But Facebook is the vehicle that allows more of the lowlifes to come out of their hole. I don't know. Has Facebook spawned that or just revealed it? That's a big question. We can analyze that for a while. Now, don't get me wrong. Still a lot of nice people out there on Facebook. They say, thank you, Josh. Thank you, Mayor. We appreciate you. We support you. But you got to love the others who just can't resist name calling and wondering if he's so corrupt that he's taking the Novato tax money and all the money that should be going to refurbishing this and refurbishing that and spending it on himself. Oh, there was also somebody who said, shouldn't he be taking care of local issues? Local issues? The guy can't address what's going on in the world because he should be taking care of local issues? The guy gets paid, what, 30 cents a year? He can't go to El Paso for two days? Look at me, I'm getting pissed now. Now I'm just defending Josh. Maybe I should post on Facebook. Hey, fuck all y'all. Wouldn't that be liberating? I mean, I don't. I wouldn't. I avoid. I know it would start a shit storm. It's an actual weather condition. But it would be so nice to just write that. Carefree. Can't do it, though. Gotta remain cordial, PC, and pleasant. Just like the tone of here we go. All right, that'll do it. Just a quick one today. Actually, I don't know how quick it is. I don't time these. But I've noticed they always come out to about a half hour. All right, hope your summer is going well so far. Once again, you could check me out on Twitter, if you like, at jrosenberg nine. Five, seven. Leave a review on iTunes. Why not? Huh? We're all friends here. This is a safe zone. And also summer reading. Don't forget Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime, is a masterpiece. And I'm not just throwing that word around. I actually mean it. Trevor Noah's book is a masterpiece. All right. Episode 21 is now officially in the books. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>